page number. Can somebody yell it out when you get there? Acts chapter 15. Sonia, what's the page number? 980, 982. 991. 981. 981, sorry. It, it's, it's in the upper 900s. All right, everybody found it. Wave at me if you've got Acts 15. All right, so I'm going to read uh, all the way through verse number 35. Most of the chapter. Everybody ready? Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. And this is what they said. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon, that's another way of saying Simon Peter, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written. After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city and every Sabbath day he has read aloud in the synagogues. 
Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened them with a long message. They were good Baptist preachers. Long message. After spending some time there, they went back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we dive into your word, that you would give us a submissive humility. That we would follow this. That we would sit under this. That we would obey this. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. So about a week ago, because it was a school break, uh, we got to go to um, the Brooklyn Museum on uh, Eastern Parkway and uh, looked at this really cool uh, exhibit uh, on the ground level called The Chronicles of New York City. Has anybody been in there and seen it? Uh, you can look it up online. It doesn't, it's not quite as impressive online. Um, but uh, it's this huge mural um, over multiple walls. It's like, I don't know. A whole story, tall, maybe taller than that, stretches around the room. Uh, and uh, it's by this artist named J.R. And what J.R. did to craft this mural, The Chronicles of New York City, is he went and he, he got permission. He, he parked in all five boroughs over the course of, I think, six months. And he invited people to come and he would take their, their picture. Uh, and they would tell him their story. Uh, and then he, what he did was he stitched something like 1,100, close to 1,150 of these people. He stitched them, their photographs, into a mural of famous New York City landmarks. So um, it creates this um, uh, obviously fake picture. It's, it's real faces, but it's, you know, people like standing at the top of the Empire State Building or on the Brooklyn Bridge, just different famous landmarks. And, and they're standing next to people that they didn't actually stand next to in, in real life. And then you can, uh, you can on the tablet, like, hear their story, and, and it's, it's very interactive and things like that. But I was struck in looking at this mural of close to 1,150 New Yorkers. I was struck by this thought that each and every one of them and each and every one of us, we want to belong. 
Everybody in this mural, they want to be considered a New Yorker. Everybody in this mural wants to belong in this city. And I think that's what really what JR is getting at in this mural that he's really trying to say in his own way, this city is for all of us. I think that's what he's trying to communicate. Of course, not everybody thinks that. That can be a contested ideal. But we know that we all want to belong here. Whether it's here in this city, whether it's here in this church, whether it's in your family, whether it's at your job, you want to be valued by your coworkers, we all want to belong. We all want to have a sense that this place, whatever place you're in, it's for me too, right? And that's sort of the, the vibe and the message that you get as you look at these 1,150 faces of average New Yorkers. They just want to belong. In the story of Acts 15, we see this very idea of belonging being contested. As people grapple with that question, do I belong? Is this place for me? Am I welcome here? But of course, the here in question is not New York City. The here in question is not your place of work. The here in question in this text is, do I belong in the church? Is this space a space for me? Do I belong in this place? Or is this for someone else? At the end of chapter 14, what Sean preached on last week, that Paul and Barnabas come back and they, they go back to their home church, the church in Syrian Antioch, the first ever Jew-Gentile church in the history of Christianity. And they go there and they report the great things that God has done. And people are excited. They're like, praise God, the Gentiles, of all people, the Gentiles are turning to the God of Israel. Hallelujah, this is great news. That's how chapter 14 ends. But chapter 15 introduces an ominous note of dissent. Remember, Satan is always trying to crush the church in the book of Acts. We have seen it again and again. A lot of times it's been from the outside. It's been the Herods of the world or the Sanhedrins of the world trying to crush the church from the outside to stop the work of God. But sometimes it's been from within. It's been the Ananiases and Sapphiras of the world. It's been the church members that Satan stirred up to cause conflict, to try to cause the church to collapse upon itself from within. Because Satan doesn't really care whether he destroys the church from the outside or from the inside. He just wants it destroyed. And what we see here is that the attack is coming seemingly from within the church. Some men come down from Judea. That's global headquarters of the church of Jesus Christ. This is where the church originated. Remember the apostles, when the Christians scattered because of the persecution of Stephen, the apostles stayed put. Everybody else scattered, and the apostles, maybe a few others, stayed put in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the global headquarters of the Christian faith. This is where the movement originated, and this is more or less where the movement is run from. And so some people come from there. People come from there and begin to teach the brothers 
in Syrian Antioch. And here's what they say. In verse 1, unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you can not be saved. I think it's interesting. It says they began to teach the brothers. There's a reason why they're talking to the brothers. It's the brothers who would have to be circumcised in order for this to work. So what you've got is some people coming down, or rather up, it says down, they're, they're, they're going up into Syrian Antioch to this sister church of the church in Jerusalem, and they're saying, hey, look, this is so cool what God is doing in your midst. Just one little thing that we want to say. In order for you to be Christian, all of you who are men need to be circumcised. This is... Salvation surgery. Now, how many of you, on the day that you trusted Jesus, were asked to undergo surgery in order to become a Christian? Probably none of you. And uh, we'd probably all run out and say it was a cult if uh, I said, hey, we're all going to have a surgery today. (laughs) You'd call the cops. Yeah, Sonia's like, see ya, honey. No salvation surgery here. And I think sometimes we just kind of gloss over this. But what they're talking about is a mandated surgery in order to be a Christian. Now, uh, normally circumcision uh, is performed on young boys when the pain is more tolerable. But they're talking about is like grown men. And the, and the Pharisees are like, hey, this is no big deal. We did it when we were eight days old. We don't remember a thing. Easy peasy. You want to be a Christian? You want to be into this club? You want a place to belong? This is all you got to do. The, uh, the people of this church, probably especially the men, were a little up in arms. <laughs> And uh, it says in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas engaged them in serious argument and debate. Underscore the word serious. Like, people are angry over this. Wait, you mean I have to have surgery in order to stay in this church? It, It was okay. Like, I helped start this church, but now you're saying that I have to have surgery to stay. That I have to be circumcised to belong. And so there is this serious argument and debate. And it really goes to the issue of culture as well. It's not just talking about bodily surgery, but in essence, what these men from Judea are saying is they're saying to be a part of the church, we want you to do away with your culture and become our culture. Because circumcision was at the heart of what it meant to be Jewish. It was like the badge of identity for a Jewish person, especially a Jewish man, right? If you said, how do you, have you asked a Jewish person, how do you keep the covenant? Probably they would have said, we get circumcised. That's what we do. Uh, all the way back to Abraham, that's what we do. We get circumcised. Uh, and there were these, there were these important debates uh, in the first century within Jewish circles over the importance of circumcision. There were, uh, there were Gentiles who wanted to embrace the God of Israel. There's this, uh, there's this famous um, queen 
uh, Helena and her uh, son Izatis, and they wanted to become Jewish. And so there was this fierce debate recorded by uh, the historian Josephus. There was this fierce debate over whether or not he would have to actually go through with circumcision. They really wanted to try to avoid it, if at all possible, for obvious reasons. He ended up doing it eventually because there were two factions within Judaism. One was like, no, you just have to like, obey our laws, but you don't have to be circumcised. The other was like, no, you got to do this. You have to stop being a Gentile, and you have to become a Jew. And the way that we know that you're really a Jew is if you have salvation surgery. So Paul and Barnabas, who are circumcised themselves, decide to throw their bodies in front of this speeding train. They jump on the track in front of the people that this train is aimed at, and they're like, whoa, hold up. Personally, this doesn't matter as much to us because we're already circumcised. But you cannot tell the people that we just led to Christ that they have to become circumcised. You can't do this. We won't let you. And so they engage in this serious argument and debate. And so they decide that they're going to go down and they're going to meet with the apostles. The 11 guys who were with Jesus, who hung out with him, plus Matthias, who was picked to be the 12th apostle in chapter 1. They're going to go down. And they're going to get this issue settled once and for all because this is really important. It's important doctrinally because we want to know, is salvation by grace or do we have to do a good deed, in this case, get circumcised in order to be a Christian? So it's of great doctrinal and theological importance. It's also of great importance for the, for the future history of the church. Is it going to be a Jewish movement? Or is it going to be for everybody? And really the future of the church hinges on this moment. It's oftentimes called the Jerusalem Council. Throughout history, um, the church has gathered together to debate different issues. This is the first time. This is the first time they do it. The Jerusalem Council. So what Paul and Barnabas do with some of the brothers is they go down and they travel on their way to Jerusalem. And while they go, they're telling people... Here's what happened with the Gentiles. Everywhere they go, they're like, hey, did you hear the news? The Gentiles got saved. We went on this mission trip. We went to places like Cyprus and Pisidia and Antioch. And everywhere we went, people who are not like us have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so Paul and Barnabas are sharing this story. And so there is just like pockets of joy all along the road as they're traveling to Jerusalem. All the Jewish Christians are getting excited by this great news. And so in verse 4, they arrive at Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church, and they're telling this good news. But it says in verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. This is the same thing that the people in verse 1 said. It shows us a couple of interesting things. It describes these people as believers. Verse 5 says, some of the believers, these are Christians, who are a little mixed up. Some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, so that also tells us that some of the Pharisees have come to faith in Christ. That shouldn't surprise us because earlier on in the book of Acts, it's describing how priests turned to faith in Christ, how some of the Levites were being saved. We know that Nicodemus uh, and Joseph of Arimathea from the book of John, they were high-ranking officials in this 
Phariseeical movement, they are turning to Christ. So it's not surprising at all that people within the movement of the Pharisees, some of them have turned to Christ. But it doesn't mean that they automatically just kind of cleared their mind of all their bad ideas now that they're a Christian. You've probably experienced that before. Discipleship is a lifelong journey, right? And just because you're saved now doesn't mean that all your thinking is straightened out. Just because I'm a pastor now doesn't mean all my thinking is straightened out. You've got this faction of Pharisees within the church who are saying, well, hold up. We have to do it like this. And the Pharisees were a very nationalistic sect. They were a very um, uh, sort of populist movement that wanted to embrace Jews alone. That was a, not, not everything that they stood for, but that was a big part of it, right? And so for them, the idea that there are outsiders coming in who aren't like us and maybe aren't willing to be circumcised, this is rocking the boat just a little bit too much. So they say, we know what we got to do. And then proceeds this debate at the first ever council of the church, the Jerusalem council. The apostles and the elders gather together to consider this matter, and there was much debate. And after much debate, different leaders weigh in. Presumably, a lot of other people talk too, right? Because um, it says there's much debate. And then different people weigh in. Peter weighs in first, then Barnabas and Paul, and then finally James. So let's look at each one of them real quick. Peter in verse 7. He says, brothers and sisters, you're aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you. I want to stop right there. The idea of God choosing a people would have been very, very familiar for the Jewish people. Because they were the chosen ones. They were the elect ones and had been since the time of Abraham. God chose a people for himself. And for the Pharisees in particular, that idea of being the chosen people, that was like their most, one of their most important ideas. And so Peter decides to use that exact language, but not about them. He says, don't you remember that in the early days, God made a choice among you? I can imagine the Pharisees sitting there and being like, yeah, yeah, God made a choice. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not talking about you. Keep going. God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. He's talking about Cornelius. I think Sean preached on that passage a couple of months ago. By Peter's mouth, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The gospel goes to Cornelius and Cornelius believes. And Peter says, and God who knows the heart chose them. He bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. There's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, according to the choice of God. That's what Peter's saying. He said, so now, why are you testing God? By putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. He said, we've not been very good at keeping the law. Have you seen our track record? Have you read the Old Testament? Do you know what we did? We've not been very good at this. So why are we making the Gentiles do that very thing that we failed at? He says, on the contrary, and this is so important, Peter said, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are. 
So he's saying, us Jews, we are saved by faith and grace. And the Gentiles are saved in the exact same way that we are. None of us are saved by circumcision. None of us are saved by keeping the law. None of us are saved by reading the Torah. That's what they call the original books of the Old Testament. None of us are saved by all of this. It is a sovereign act of God, and he chose them to be included in our midst. This is what Peter says. And then the whole assembly, there's kind of like a holy hush. It says they become silent. And they listen to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter gives some history. He says, don't you remember how God chose Cornelius? And then Peter and Barnabas give a testimony, a mission report. They're like, we went to Cyprus. We went to Pisidian Antioch. Here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. The Gentiles got saved here. They got baptized here. The Holy Spirit fell on them here. It looks exactly like what happened with us, except they don't keep the law. They're not circumcised. But other than that, it's the same. So Peter talks about history. Barnabas and Paul describe a testimony. And then in verse 13, James gets to some theology. Now, who is James? He's the brother of Jesus. Uh, We don't know a whole lot about him. Um, but uh, he is the half-brother of Jesus who has risen to prominence in this church. He's not one of the uh, apostles, but he's been included as an important figure here, and he says, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened. By the way, that is important. He calls him Simeon, not Simon. Probably means he's speaking in Aramaic, okay? Okay. What is the issue here? The issue is that Greek people are coming into the church. And it's causing a problem among the Aramaic-speaking Hebraic peoples. And so the leader of the Hebraic faction stands up to defend the Greeks. He does it in Aramaic. We're the most conservative group of Pharisees who are like, no, we don't want your kind in here where they're going to get this message. He says, Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. He says, the words of the prophets agree with this. Then he quotes the Old Testament. By the way, I know I've said it before, but this is important. If you're using one of the black Bibles there that we have provided for you, every quotation from the Old Testament is in bold. Um, And whether you're using that Bible or another Bible, it's important that we recognize when they are quoting the Bible. Because this is the only Bible they've got, is the Old Testament. And they go to that well again and again. This is where James gets his theology from. It's from the Old Testament. It's from the book of Amos. And he quotes this. After these things, God says, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name declares the Lord who made these things known from long ago. James said, you know what? Peter told us some history of what happened with Cornelius. Peter and Barnabas told us a testimony of what happened with the Gentiles. All of this agrees with the Old Testament in which God had predicted that he would rebuild David's fallen tent. He would 
put together its ruins so that all of humanity, even all the Gentiles, would come to God. James said this was there all along in the Old Testament, and we missed it. It was there. We were so focused on circumcision. We were so focused on our elect status as the chosen ones of Israel that we missed the point. The point is that we are a light to all the nations, and now the Gentiles are coming in. So Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James, they're all united. They're all saying the same thing. So James, as the leader of the most conservative faction there, he says, therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulty for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. But instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he has read aloud in the synagogues. Here's what James does. He says no to the circumcision faction. He says that's, that's way too far. First off, you don't, get, you don't get saved, you don't become a Christian by doing some good deed. That's what later Christians would call heresy. And James rebukes that outright. And he also says, if we do that, we're going to stay a Jewish church. But the Old Testament says this message is for everybody. He said, but I'm going to suggest that we kind of craft a compromise. Now, some people don't like the idea of compromise. I think it's a dirty word. But that's exactly what they do. He says, how about we just write them a letter and say, abstain from these four practices so that Jews and Gentiles can come together to be one church. He says, I think we should say, don't eat, don't eat food that has been offered to idols. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't eat anything that has been strangled or that has blood in it. So three out of these four commands have to do with food. Which food was really important back then, just as food is important today. Now, if you're at all familiar with both ancient or modern Jews, you know they have a special diet, right? In modern times, we call it eating kosher. Um, and they're very strict. And if you want to have a meal with a modern-day Jewish person, you're going to have to be willing to eat a certain kind of way. Or eat at a certain kind of restaurant, at least, where they can eat a certain kind of way. You're going to have to, you're going to, have, to have, to have some, uh, some compromise. You can't be like, hey, so we're going to go uh, eat some pork ribs together. You're not going to have a sit-down with a Jewish person, either ancient or modern, doing that. What James does is he says, look, there are a lot of Jewish people scattered throughout the world, throughout the, the Greco-Roman world, and... They want to understand that the Gentiles are following the God of Israel. And, and what they want to do is they want to come together with you as one church. But they have some very strict dietary rules. And so, if you as Gentiles ignore their needs, you are not loving them. He says, look, I will fight to the death to keep them from circumcising you. The Pharisees are over in the corner sharpening their knives, but I will not let them touch you. But I'm asking you, out of love, 
would you be willing to change your diet? Not asking to change your body. I told him no to that, but would you change your diet? For the sake of your brothers and sisters. Would you abstain from meat offered to idols? Would you not eat something that's been strangled and, and has blood in it? And a lot of these, three out of these four food-based ideas, they all go back to the Le Leviticus law. These rituals that Jewish people felt like they had to do to be good Jews. And they're following them, right? Even those who have become Christians, they're following them. Because this is part of their culture. It'd be like, um, when I became a Christian, nobody asked me to stop being white. That would not be possible, right? Nor would it be good, because that's how God made it. For a Jewish person, they wouldn't instantly be like, oh, well, I'm going to quit all my Jewish like food laws and all of this stuff. No, it's part of being Jewish, but I am a Christian at the heart of it. What James says is, for the sake of unity, why don't we figure out how we can work together and lay down our preferences so the only thing that I'm going to ask of the Gentiles is that they lay down some preferences and things that they probably can do, but I'm going to ask them not to do them, especially when they're with Gentiles. So like an easy example would be something like um, alcohol. Maybe you drink alcohol, you feel like you can drink a glass of wine and follow the Lord in doing that. I think Jesus obviously drank wine. But when I'm sitting down with one of my brothers and sisters in the church who's an alcoholic, I probably shouldn't drink with them or in front of them. I can, I can say I have this conviction, I have this right, but I will not exercise my right when it is going to cause a problem to my brother or sister. I will not disrupt the unity and the holiness of God's people. So three out of the four things, that's what James is doing. He's calling people to sacrifice what they can do. The other one is a reference to sexual immorality, um, which obviously is a very different category. Sexual immorality was rampant in the Gentile world. There was all different kinds of sexual immorality, just like there is today. And what James is saying is for the sake of the mission, we have got to have a great reputation among all the people's in, the, in the, the diaspora, the, the dispersed peoples. So I want you to take great care that your ethics are, are unimpeachable, that you've got the highest moral character and integrity. And he expresses that in terms of their sexual ethics. So he's like, look, I won't let those guys in the corner. They're not going to cut you. I'm just asking, would you change your diet? And would you make sure that you look pure? That's it. And if you do that, we'll be able to function together as one church, as one people of God. And so they write this up in a letter. They send it back with Paul and Barnabas representing the Antioch church, but they don't just want them to go back alone. They want to send some of their own representatives from the Jerusalem church, so they send Judas and Silas too. Because they're trying to say, this is a, uh, we're in unanimous agreement. The leaders of that church and the leaders of this church all agree, this is what's important. This is what we're going to do. And so they go back, and this letter brings great joy to the Gentiles. They're like, hallelujah. I don't have to have surgery. I can stay in this church. I belong. And the church has settled once and for all 
my status, my identity. The Gentile Christians of Syria and Antioch, they were on the bubble. Did they belong or did they not? And the church has answered based on the Old Testament with a resounding yes, you belong. You ought to be here. This place is for you. And so the church rejoices. Unity is forged. And the mission of God advances. Satan's plan to disrupt the church by causing a problem from within is thwarted. That's the story of this text. Now to apply it. Applying it is trickier. Applying it is harder. And I want you to know that I have, um, I have wrestled a long time uh, with this sermon, and in particular, how to apply it. I've been uh, working on this sermon for at least a month, praying about some of these points of application for much, much longer than that. Lost some sleep over some of the things that I'm about to say. So I just want to ask you to bear with me uh, in love as these early Christians did here. Okay? I have four, four ideas that I think God is calling us to. Four things that gospel churches do. And why am I saying gospel churches? Because what James does is he grounds everything in his gospel theology from the Old Testament. He says, this is the gospel, that the good news is for all peoples. It's for the Gentiles too and not just for us. And so James and Paul and Barnabas and Peter They are pleading for the church to truly be a gospel church, a church where everybody who believes has a place to belong. So I want to suggest that gospel churches do or do not do four things. First, gospel churches resist the temptation to turn inward. This is what the Pharisees wanted to do. They're like, we don't really care if this stays a Jewish group. We're cool with the way things are. We are the chosen ones. We've been the chosen ones for thousands of years. It doesn't matter to us, really, if it stays that way. They didn't understand that by asking other people to become circumcised, that they were going to effectively alter the course of church history. They were okay with it being us four and no more. It was a church that was fighting the temptation to turn inward, and Satan loves it when a church turns inward. Satan loves it when a church is satisfied with the status quo and is not concerned about reaching people outside the four walls of the church. People tell me, uh, and uh, please don't take offense if you were the one who have said this. Uh, Many people have said this to me. I love Mosaic because it's a small church. Feels like a family. I love that it feels like a family too. But we cannot and we must not ever be okay with turning inward. If we love the idea of family, why not add to the family? The Pharisees are like, hey, we're going to throw up some roadblocks to keep people from coming in. And Paul and Barnabas are kicking down the roadblocks. They're like, no, that's not what we went out there for. That's not why we went to Cyprus. That's not why we went to Basidian Antioch. And so James has to settle this matter, and they agree together that the church will not turn inward, and praise God, they don't. This is the, this is the, the time when it's settled, and from here, the church just goes outward to the ends of the earth. 
And it ends with Poland, Rome, which would have symbolized in Jewish thought as far out there as you can get. Uh, it'd be like, uh, you know, Christians hanging out in Times Square or Las Vegas or someplace where we think like that's the devil's spot, right? The gospel had penetrated to the devil's spot in Rome. It had gone all the way there because the church in this chapter resisted the temptation to turn inward. I'm pleading with you to work with me to resist the temptation to turn inward. I believe that we have been chosen just like the Jewish people were. But we have not been chosen for our own good, but we have been blessed like Israel was to be a blessing. We have been chosen to showcase the glory of God before the world. Let's not turn inward. Second, gospel churches resist the pull of legalism. Legalism is usually defined as when you add something to the gospel. So the gospel is this good news that Jesus the King has come to offer us new life. He does it through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection and his eventual return. When you say you've got to be circumcised to become a Christian, you are adding to the gospel. And so this was a very serious matter. I mean, it wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to... I'm going to have to have some uncomfortable surgery. It was more than that. It was, are we going to be gospel people or are we going to be law people? The Pharisees were okay with being law people. They were okay with adding to the gospel. Justo Gonzalez says these Pharisees have received the gospel and they have accepted it. Remember, they're called believers. They have really believed the gospel. But... Gonzalez says, Paul, beyond accepting the gospel, has joined God's mission in the world. Something happens when you're out there engaging lost people and you have lost friends who are far from God. It forces you to think just a little bit differently. And that's the difference between Paul and Barnabas and the Pharisees. Gospel churches resist the pull of legalism. They refuse to add to the gospel. So yesterday I had a pastor tell me that um, uh, um, the topic of politics came up. And the pastor said, you know, uh, a lot of people think that Democrats can't be Christians. Now, I've not polled you. I don't know who here is Democrat or who here is Republican. Uh, but that would be an addition to the gospel. And if it was said in reverse, Republicans can't love Jesus, that would be an addition to the gospel. Are we gospel people or are we people who are like, let's build some roadblocks to keep those people out? Thankfully, the pastor was like, this is a really bad idea. I think he was talking about people in his church who, who think that. Um, we cannot and we must not ever add an iota to the gospel. So crucially serious. Gospel churches resist the temptation to turn inward. Gospel churches resist the pull of legalism. And gospel churches refuse to divide. Now, there are times when it might be necessary for a church to divide. Like if I were to start preaching heresy, you guys should fire me. And if for some reason you can't fire me, you should leave, right? Um, there, are, there are good times to divide. But most times Christians divide over things that have nothing to do with heresy. And churches are splintered and people are hurt over unnecessary division. Could be cliques where 
groups of people formed cliques within the church. I've seen this happen before in many churches. I have seen this happen in our church over the last five and a half years. And usually when I see it happening, um, I pray that God would break up the clique. Because we have to be a people in which everybody feels like they belong to everybody else. There was a clique in the church. There was this Pharisee faction. And they were, they were strong because they were cohering to one another. And Paul and Barnabas are trying to like broaden the clique and make the clique as wide as the church. That's what we are called to do. We are not called to divide. In a church like ours, we can divide along cultural differences. That's obviously exactly what's happening in the text. Um, I think that God has um, uh, given us a lot of grace in this area. And, I, and I'm grateful for how when I look at our church, um, I, see, I see so much unity across cultural lines. Um, I think that um, we should thank God for that. Uh, we don't have to have, at least in my estimation, we don't have to have our own Jerusalem council and be like, hey, let's get together because people from this culture are struggling to like people from this culture at Mosaic. But if it ever happened, if we started saying, you know what, I just like to hang out with people who are like me, maybe that would be the sign that we should ask, are we being shaped by the gospel? I'm not saying it's happening. In fact, I think it's not happening. But let's make sure it never does. Let's be gospel people. Um, the last application that I want to make between uh, when I'm talking about gospel churches refusing to divide, and I think this is something that could very easily happen to us, um, and I want you to hear me out on this, is I think we could divide between people with kids and people without. Uh, when I lay awake at night praying that our church would be united, and that our church would stay together. What concerns me less is whether white people and Haitian people get along or Asian people and white people get along. I don't worry about that because God's given us grace. I worry more and pray, and I have been praying for months and months, that we would be a church where people who have kids feel like their kids are welcome here, and that this is a place for families, and also people who walk in who don't have kids feel like this is a place for me. Remember we, we talked earlier about what does it mean to belong? Every New Yorker wants to belong in this city. The Christians in Syrian Antioch wanted a place to belong. And we can, we can intentionally or unintentionally, and I'm sure it would be unintentionally, we can send off a signal that people who are different don't belong. I think that those of us who have kids have a responsibility to show that this place is for those without kids. And I think those without kids have a responsibility to work hard to show that this is a place for those with kids. Um, here's, a, here's a couple of practical ideas. Ways that I think we could keep from breaking down into cliques where it's like the clique is like the family people and the clique is the people without kids. I think those without kids have an opportunity to show love to families. You could um, volunteer to babysit so a couple could enjoy a rare date. Uh, you could say, hey, like I get to go on a date whenever I want. 
You guys haven't been on a date in six months. How about we volunteer to watch your kids? <laughs> Some people are like, hey, can you help me with this? <laughs> um, or maybe it could look like if you don't have children, maybe it could look like if you don't have children that you take responsibility for those kids who are around you on a Sunday morning or at a small group. My sister-in-law calls this sphere parenting. Um, uh, obviously parents are ultimately responsible uh, for their kids, but like we can keep an eye on those who are around us. And, and if someone is next to me in need, I can't be like, well, you're not, you're not mine. Like actually in, in the gospel, they, they are mine. We're all, we're all together, we're a family, right? So I think these are ways that those without kids can show some love and concern for those with kids. And there's probably many more ideas. These are just uh, ideas to kickstart the conversation. I think those with, with kids, people like me and Sonia, we have an opportunity to show love to those without kids. We can teach our kids one of the most important lessons that they will learn in life. That life is not about you. It is not about your convenience. Instead, it's about us. It's about this group and making sure that every single person in the room has a maximized opportunity to hear from God and to grow spiritually. So we can help them to have fun in this space or in the spaces of our small groups. But we also try as parents to help them act in a way that doesn't keep others from having gospel conversations. That it doesn't keep people, when they're trying to have a conversation about the gospel, or trying to go deep in discipleship, that we help our children to understand that these conversations are important. Maybe those of us with kids could do the hard and vulnerable thing of asking those without kids, hey, what could I do, what can me and Sonia do to help you feel like this place is for me? I don't have all the answers, but I am, I am concerned about the potential of, of cliques between families and those without kids in our church. And I'm pleading with you to help me fight against that, to help us to be one family. Everybody with me? My fourth and last point of application is that gospel churches lay down their preferences for one another. In Philippians 2, Jesus is held up as the example. He's the one who Paul said we're supposed to be like. And Paul said in Philippians 2, let everybody consider the other people as more important than themselves. The Pharisees weren't doing that. They were sharpening their knives in the corner because they thought they were the most important. Their way of life was the most important. They weren't looking out for the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas, who are circumcised and don't personally have any skin in the game, they are the ones who are willing to stand in front of that speeding bullet and say, no, we will not let you do this. What we need are people who will consider others as more important than themselves. People who will say, I I have this prerogative. I have this right. I have this preference. Whether it's things like alcohol that we mentioned earlier or or, um, how we relate to one another or politics or culture, the things that could divide us. I have a right to have my political views. But I will check them at the door because I love you. And I want you, who has a different opinion than me, 
to feel like you belong in here just as much as I do. There was a uh, statement that I read this week from Willie Jennings that uh, I think is haunting. He says, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a bridge between the cries of my people. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a bridge between the cries of my people and the cries of other peoples that can be heard in the distance. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're standing before their people. And they're saying, we have heard the cries of a distant people. In Pisidian Antioch. And in Cyprus. We hear them crying, and you, our own people, we're asking, we're pleading for you to hear those same cries and then to join with us in laying down our lives and to compromise. And you know, both parties compromise here in Acts 15. And that's what I'm calling us to. Unity. Being willing to compromise. Being willing to give up. We don't compromise on the gospel. The gospel is actually the thing that forges the compromise here. And the compromise is, all right, the Pharisees aren't going to be totally happy because we're not going to circumcise the Gentiles. But the Gentiles may not be totally happy either because we're going to ask them to eat more kosher, at least especially when they're around Jews. So everybody has to give up a little something that they love for the sake of this brand new thing called the church. To go back to the Chronicles of New York City, as I stood before that mural and looked at these, I think, 1,143 photographs of average New Yorkers, people who desperately want to look like they belong, who desperately want to feel that this city is a place for them. It doesn't encourage them when, when uh, local politicians, as recently just happened, said, uh, New Yorkers, if you're from Iowa or uh, Montana, you should go back where you came from. Uh, one of our local Brooklyn elected officials uh, just said that. That doesn't make those faces on the wall feel like they belong in New York. It doesn't feel like... They're from, they belong here. And what I am asking us to do is to make sure that intentionally or unintentionally, we don't do what that official did. That we make sure that every single person who walks in these doors, every single person who attends our small group Bible studies, that they feel like this is a place for them. What I love about this story is because it means that a Gentile like me has a place to belong. If the Pharisees had won the debate, I wouldn't be here. History would have gone a different path. And the church would be mostly confined to the Middle East. Because the Pharisees lost the argument. A Gentile like me has a place to belong as part of God's family. So let's strive together to be gospel people. People who are always striving to make this a place for every single person. Are you with me? Let's pray.